Let us pray. Father, this is your day. I pray that this would be pleasing to you, that your spirit would be poured out on your word, and that Christ would be exalted and proclaimed. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. In the Disney animated version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the main antagonist is a man called Judge Claude Frollo. He is a self-righteous man. He is a self-righteous upholder of law and morality in Paris. At one point, he meets the gypsy woman Esmeralda, and he becomes enamored with her. Well, to be honest, enamored isn't the right word. He lusts after her. Now, Frodo, Frollo thinks that he is above such vices, so he is conflicted, and he attempts to justify himself in good old Disney fashion with a song. And uh, in the movie, in the song, he says the following words, it's not my fault, I'm not to blame, it is the gypsy girl, the witch who sent this flame. It's not my fault if in God's plan he made the devil so much stronger than a man. Do you see what Frollo is doing here? Do you see who he is ultimately blaming for his lust? He is attempting to pass himself off as the victim, as a victim of circumstances, or as a victim of somebody else. I'm not sinful, he is saying. Something else is causing me to sin. It was the girl. It was my circumstances. It was God. Now, this uh, blame shifting is not new to the human experience. In fact, we see it at the very beginning. In the garden, when Adam was confronted by God with his sin, when God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response is, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you see the parallel here with the words of Claude Frollo? The attempt to pass the buck, to play the part of the victim, to shift blame onto someone else, even God? Now what about you? Have you ever done this? Have you ever attempted to blame your circumstances, your childhood, your genetics, the time of day, the fact that you were tired, or even humor the idea that if only God had done things differently, I wouldn't have been forced to do this? Now, as we continue in our study of the book of James, the author addresses the question of who really is to blame when we are tempted or when we give in to said temptations. As a bit of a reminder, James began his letter with a call to rejoicing. A call to rejoice in all tri- various trials with all joy because of what they would produce. He said that such trials produce steadfastness, which means endurance. And such endurance has a result of sanctification in the Christian life, being made more and more holy and set apart unto God. And to such, and such joy, to find joys in such trials requires one to be devo- wholly devoted to God. 
to not be turned aside to the left or the right, and to crave after that holiness which God is, calls us to and is working in us. James then gives the example of wealth and status. He exhorts both the poor and the rich alike to be focused on the final outcome of life, which is the hope of eternal life, the promised eternal life, and the being made perfect before God. And this eternal life is something which both the poor and the rich alike receive by faith in Christ alone. Wealth and status do not help you at all in this. And finally, in verse 12, uh, James pronounces a blessing on those who face such trials and remain steadfast, who triumph over them. Now, James seems to be anticipating the thoughts of those who fail or who who are tempted to fail and who, like Claude Frollo, are trying to pass the blame or even to justify why they have to give in to said temptations. For the person, well, sorry. Uh, he says this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And for the person who fails a test or who is tempted to fail, there may be the inclination to say, if only God had not brought this into my life. Yet James would have us stop our mouth before we make such an utterance. Why is this? This is because of the very character of God, which we see in verse 13 and 17. God is unassailable by the draw to commit evil, and he himself tempts no one to evil. He is the father of light. Light, which is regularly used in Scripture as an expression of life and of the glory of God's character, his holiness, his radiant perfection, his righteousness, and even his wrath against sin. And indeed, we recognize that light has no darkness in it. God's character is untarnished by any sort of variation. There's not even a hint of evil inclination in him. Therefore, we cannot for a moment consider that God tempts us to to evil, that that evil comes from him. Now, in a discussion of light... We have to consider what John says. For John, the fact that God is light is a reason we must take sin seriously. Why we must acknowledge it for what it is and confess it to God. He says the following in his first epistle in one, chapter 1, verse 5. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So temptation, the draw to evil, does not come from God. It cannot come from him because he is light. And there's no darkness in him, none whatsoever. So where does temptation come from? James goes on to explain that temptation comes from within, not from without, from one's own desires. Sometimes this is translated as evil desires or as lust. While that is not a necessary translation, it is clearly this that James has in mind. Now, where do such desires come from? They come from our hearts. No one can force you to desire something. No one, well, somebody can force you to do something, certainly, but they can't force you to want to do it. Such inclinations come from the very fabric of who you are, your will, and the core of your being. 
So when you and I give into our desires, we weren't dragged kicking and screaming into it as if the devil or my biology made me do it. No, according to the word, the one who is tempted has been enticed by their own desires, which beckon them. The wink of an eye, a come-hither gesture, the promise of pleasure. You and I are drawn to temptation eagerly. We see it, and we run into it. We run to its arms and embrace it, a fully willing lover. And when we embrace our desire, we give ourselves fully to it. Now, I hope this language is making you a bit uncomfortable. This seems to be James's purpose as he describes what temptation is. It is entering into an intimate and illicit partnership with our desire. A partnership which results in conception. And the results of this union is not something to be rejoiced in. It is a wretched thing. It is sin. Now what makes sin so wretched? First of all, as we have seen, it is so very contrary to God's character. It is a corruption of something that is good. The misuse, the decay, the putrefying of something which God intended to be good and joyful. It is as opposite to his holiness as darkness is to light. And the wretchedness of sin is that it does not produce life, but it produces death. This is what is said in verse 15. This sin, which is a product of our union with our own desire, grows up. And when fully grown, it produces death. Do you see the weight of this? Death is a result of giving into temptation. And God is not to blame. Your circumstances aren't to blame. You alone, I alone, bear the guilt and responsibility of this chain of events. But it gets worse. What is worse is the fact that this path was not our only option. Sometimes we talk as if you only had the you had the choice of the lesser of two evils, but this is not the case. God declares to us in his word, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, what does this mean? This means that we never have only the choice to sin. You will never be presented with the choice of the lesser of two evils. So when you and I give in to temptation, it is done willingly, knowingly. We stand with two choices before us, the love of God or the love of something else, the love of he who sent his son to die for us or desire which leads to sin, and we chose our desire. Now, what is meant by the fact that sin brings forth death? Simply put, it is what God said to Adam in the garden when he told him the day that you disobey And eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So the death is a death of the one who is responsible for the sin. The wages of sin is death. So do you recognize this? 
Do you see the horror of sin and what it can result in? The horror of sin is not only in the immediate negative consequences, the disapproval of loved ones, society, or the punishment of the law. Sometimes we say things like, being angry only hurts yourself. And while this is true, this is a small part of the result of anger. And we must be careful not to treat sin as merely an enemy of a happy and healthy life now. Sin is the enemy because it can condemn someone. It declares us guilty and unfit for God's presence. Not because we are poor victims of sin, but because we are factories of it. Not because it produce, we produce it in our hearts. Sin separates a person from God and can do so eternally. That is the greatest and the most terrible result of sin. Eternal and ultimate damnation. Eternal death rather than eternal life. Now, James is addressing Christians in this letter, Christians who have been given new life in Christ, those whose sins have been covered in the blood of the Lamb and forgiven. Christian, sin is not what you have been called to. This is not what you have been made a child of God for. Do not be fooled, brethren. Brethren, What comes from God will not result in sin and death. No, Every gift which he, the Father of light, sends is good and perfect. Now, when James says that it is good, he is using it in a stronger sense than we typically say. Good, in its true and full meaning, refers to utter wholeness and blessedness, something which brings life and life as the recipient is brought closer to God. This is a sort of goodness which can only come from God himself, who himself is the only one who is really good. On top of this, God's gifts are perfect. They do exactly what God intends them to do. They are exactly what he intends them to be and accomplish. And what they do not result in sin and death. That is our doing. And James also declares this, that the Christian has been brought forth by God. While sin brings forth death, God brings forth life, newness of life. Therefore, the call here is no longer to live for sin. Christian, you have been brought forth into newness of life. Therefore, you're called to abandon your partnership with your desire that produces sin. Such activities are contrary to God, the Father of pure and perfect life. Instead, you have been brought forth by God for something far greater. Note what the Christian is called in this text, a sort of first fruit of God's creatures. What does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, during the first harvest of the season, the crops that were first gathered were brought to God as an expression, a representation of the rest a taste of everything else that would be. So the Christian, when he is called the first fruit, is being described here as a taste of what is to come. The Christian is meant to be an expression of what is to come, a living testimony of the nature of God's true creation. Christian, you were not meant to bring forth death, but to to live in newness of life, 
to live now that life you will one day be living for all eternity. To honor and glorify God. This is the will of God, which he has done through the word of life, that is, the gospel. You were not meant to be a producer of sin and death, but to be a new creature living new life for the glory and honor of your God and Savior. So in light of this all, how do we face temptation? Jesus taught us, and we prayed it this morning, one of the most important prayers we can say is for God to deliver us from temptation and evil. To keep us away from it. Because the truth is, if you and I attempt to combat temptation on our own, we will not be strong enough. But when we run to God, when we seek his grace in prayer, his word, and through the fellowship of believers, we will find true strength for the fight. This means we must seek God earnestly and early. Now what do I mean by seeking God early? I mean seeking him before you face temptation, not only when you meet it or half after you have succumbed. We must prepare ourselves. And this is much like being prepared for a fight. Does a warrior train to use a sword on the battlefield? He'd probably die if he did that. No, a warrior trains himself constantly for battle so that when it comes, sometimes at a moment's notice, their sword is at hand and they are ready for the fight. In the same way, you and I, we must recognize that temptation is on the prowl. It might be just around the corner. Therefore, the call is to not let it get the upper hand, but be ready. Train yourself. So what do you do when you wake up in the morning? Is your first inclination to seek God in prayer or to check your Facebook feed? Is your first incl- do we arm ourselves for the day with coffee and his word or just with coffee? Do you have a trusted partner who you can say pray for me today for I am really struggling? What about this? Do you avoid those areas where you know temptation is lurking? Or do you stroll on the roof of the housetop like David looking for your beloved desire? Now, while this preparation is necessary, I would suggest that we need to arm ourselves with something more. What we really need is for our desires to change. And for our desires to change, our hearts need to change. For if you love the enemy, why would you fight against it? Jesus says you can only have one love. You can only love this world. You can only love money or you can love God. And consider how David cried out to the God in the midst of his own sorrow for his own sin. God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. David recognized that his heart was wrong and that true change was needed and that God brings about that change. This is the work of sanctification which James has spoken of. Jesus came to redeem us And to purify us so that our devotion would be solely to him. Do you see this? 
What you and I need is to be more in love with Jesus and less in love with the world and its gilded toys of dust. Less in love with our sin. We need to be so enamored with his God and our glory that we are grieved to the heart when we turn our back on him for something else. Christian, this is a work which God has promised to complete in you. He will make you perfect and lacking in nothing. His gifts are not like sin. They do not lead to death, but are good and perfect and full of life. But just because he promised to carry this out in you, this process of sanctification, doesn't mean you can be laxed and just sit around. In light of these promises, God calls you to action. He calls you, as Paul says in Philippians, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works into you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So I ask, Christian, how are you seeking to grow in grace? How are you seeking grace to grow? And at the same time, how are you guarding against anything and everything that would draw you away from your Lord and Savior. What you and I need is to fly to God with the humble, desperate, and fervent plea to God, to, to God for strength to fight against today's temptations. For a changed heart, Lord, deliver me from evil. At the same time, what are you training your heart to love and to desire? What is it that you feast your eyes on? Jesus says that what we set our eyes on affects the inclinations of our hearts and our entire being. So what is it that consumes your heart, your eyes, your soul? He calls you to single-minded devotion to himself. And we who call Jesus our Savior owe him nothing less than this. And if you are not a Christian, and you now see your sin for what it is, know that you too can have your guilt washed away by his blood. God has promised that whoever turns from their sin, confessing it to him, and who puts their trust in Jesus Christ can, Christ can have certainty of his complete forgiveness and cleansing. John, who spoke of God as being pure light, says the following to the one who sees their sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Faithful and just. Because Christ died on the cross for our sin, we have this certainty. You too can receive a clean heart and a right spirit and the certainty of eternal life in Jesus. He is the Father of lights, after all, who does not change, who has no hint of darkness in him, and who does not lie. Let us pray. O oh God, who is Father of lights, we rejoice in that certainty of salvation that your people have in Jesus that you have given us new life to be a first fruit of your creation. And we pray, God, that we so often run away from our first love. We so often run to our desires, Lord, and neglect 
this truth. We pray, Father, forgive us our sins. We pray, Lord God, that you would truly, that you would cleanse us from this, that you would make us more and more into the image of Christ, that we would say no to our desires and yes to godliness, that we would be zealous for you and your glory, and that we would desire to be those first fruits which bring you honor and praise, Lord. We pray for your spirit to be poured out on your people, and for your spirit to work mightily through your word, that we would be to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray, Lord God, that you would exalt Christ, that you would make him, show him to us, Father, that those who do not know him would see Christ, and they would mourn for their sins, and come to him for cleansing and for forgiveness, Father. And this, it is in his most precious name that we pray this. Amen.